Well, so we're in a time of transition. And many of you maybe wonder, what, what's next? For years, we've had one pastor that, is, that has led us, and, and now there's this void, and, and we kind of wonder. And honestly, it got me thinking about all the times in my own life that I spent in transition, whether that's as a career in ministry, as a vocation, or in my life, in church life as a whole, I was thinking of all the different times that transition was a part of the equation. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things when a church transitions from a pastor, it causes you to reflect and think. And so for me, I was thinking about, um, for, for whatever reason this week, the thing that kept coming to mind is my, my time, as, not as a youth pastor in youth ministry professionally, but as a kid being in youth ministry. See, I, my junior year, my youth pastor, who I, I loved, decided to leave. And so I spent the senior year of high school uh, in a weird time of transition. Um, as a matter of fact, I was, was called to lead a couple things. I ended up, that's how I got into worship. Um, it's part of the reason why I sing and play guitar today. It's because there was a need and a gap to be filled. But I was thinking about all those transition times. I, I figured I'd show you a, a picture of this is the last photo that I have of me as a youth group kid before I graduated and went on to college. Um, and yes, I had hair. Um, I have no reason to show you this photo other than that I just wanted to prove that I had hair at one point in my life. But I did. Um, this was in Guatemala. Uh, <laughs> this, was a, this was a mission trip that our church went on the summer after I graduated high school. And it would have been the last thing that you would consider me to do as a, as a youth person before I went off to college. And and on to greater things. But I was remembering those days, and part of why was that I was thinking about all the people, all the kids. I had a youth group of about 200 kids. Um, it was a weird thing. It was a church that only had about 300 people, and no one really knew how that worked or what to do with that, but we just had all these kids. And I think back to those people that I was friends with, that I walked through the halls of high school and church at night games and all those things, and I was thinking that a lot of those kids today are no longer in churches. As I'm here preaching in a church, most of those friends that I roam the church hall with are no longer there. And I started to wonder, well, why could that be? And that's a question that's haunted me for most of my time as a youth pastor. I spent a decade working in youth ministry after I got out of college, uh, actually until I came here. And that's one of the most haunted questions is why do students who grow up in children's and youth ministries leave the church after they graduate in such large numbers. Why is that? And I think part of the reason is because we go about how we do ministry in a lot of ways quite wrong. Um, there's, there's things that we do well. We teach the Bible. We teach good Christian living. We teach all the morals and all the things that go with it. But there's a lot of things that we do not end up teaching. See, the answer is many kids in youth ministries don't actually train their kids and students for ministry. They don't learn how to walk by the Spirit, how to pray, how to discern, how to seek wisdom, how to handle trials, how to worship. And so what happens is it's this fun kind of thing that you do, and then when you graduate, you really have no idea how you fit into the broader context of God's church. And if we're honest with ourselves... I think we see this trend in adults as well. See, there's, there's a weird way that we think about church. And, and it's a dichotomy that I think of as this. You have the leaders and you have the participants. Right? The leaders, the pastor, the worship team, 
you know, the, the people running children's ministry and youth ministry, they, they come up with all the things. They, each week, the pastor crafts a sermon that they hope will pierce the hearts of somebody out there. Maybe they're listening instead of making breakfast right now. And something sticks. Each week, worship leaders all throughout this world plan worship services in the hopes that people would listen. And maybe, just maybe, that week, nobody complains about the style of worship that was chosen because it wasn't their favorite. Every week, every week, please don't email the worship people. <laughs> please don't do that ever again, right? But that's, that's what happens. There's the people that lead that are up here on stage or they're in their offices. They're coming up with things. They're the ones sending you the emails throughout the week. And then there's participants. And it's this weird divide between the experts and the professionals and the people. And in a lot of ways, this divide works seemingly well. That is until you have a void of leadership. Until you have the leader that has been doing all the things that's no longer there. And then as a church, you wonder, what do we do now? As a people, you wonder, what do we do now? See, the problem is that this way of church has two deficiencies. Number one, it lives and dies by who the leaders happen to be or not be at any given moment. And number two, it's profoundly, thoroughly unbiblical when we look at how the Lord calls us to do and be the church. And so this morning, I thought, as we are in this time of transition, as we are in this first Sunday without a pastor, that we would start to look at, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 4, how the church actually ought to function. Because I think in the months ahead, this will be a tremendous help to us as we see what the call on our lives as members of God's church really is. So I want to look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 this morning, and it's the words of Paul. See, Paul starts this after he has just summarized the gospel message. He's given a beautiful account of what the gospel actually is, and then we have the word therefore here in verse 1, and whenever you see, this is an old Bible professor adage, when you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is it therefore? And so we're going to ask. He's given us the gospel. He said, Jesus has saved you. He has picked all of us up. Every single one of us is under the same umbrella of grace, saved by faith in him on the cross. And so therefore, he says, I, the prisoner in the Lord, we're going to unpack that term, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says... When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers... And here's the key, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing in the maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then, if we do this, then we will no longer be little children. Tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. By human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Take a breath. We'll go through this one bit at a time. So Paul starts with this phrase, therefore I a prisoner. And we need to unpack, the prisoner in the Lord is, is not a negative term. He uses this, this prisoner word, but he's essentially, it's a voluntary in, enslavement, so to say. We are no longer slaves to sin, but instead to Christ. See, the only time being a slave is a good thing is if you're a slave to Christ, because you are a slave to the one who has your best at heart. And so when we enslave ourselves, when we become prisoners in the Lord, in essence being completely subjected to what the Lord wants from us and for us, it is the best life we could possibly live. And so when he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, it's, it's the best possible way of describing himself. It's not a negative term. He's not feeling like he's in prison because he has to serve Jesus. Right? He says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. That's the first thing. You as God's people, every single one of you, have a calling. It's not just the pastor who's standing up front, whoever happens to be preaching. Today it's me. Who knows who it will be in the months ahead. It's not just the person leading times of prayer or worship. You, sitting on your couch at home, you are urged to walk Worthy of the calling you have received. You have received a calling. What is that calling? It is to be the people of God. It is to walk in a ministry. See, you think that some people are called to ministry. Some people are called to be accountants. Some people lawyers. No, we are all called to gospel ministry. As I work through ordination and seek, seek a pastorate, my, my, my call is to preach the word. And, and the way that I engage in the ministry of the gospel will be the regular preaching of Christ's word. But every one of us has a same call, just a different way of going about it. Every one of you is called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't get around it. God doesn't make it optional. He doesn't say, hey, you know, if you are really good at talking... You should probably be proclaimed. No, every single person is called to be about the word of God and his gospel and carrying it forth and being the church and being the city on a hill, the light that doesn't go out. It is a call that is equally placed upon each of us, whether you are in professional ministry, and we're going to unpack the word professional a little later, or not. And so that's the first thing we have to understand. We have a calling. Paul then goes on to explain to us how this calling is supposed to work. Right? He tells us, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says when he ascended on high, he took captives, he gave gifts to people. The translation says men, and if, if you look at the original languages, the, the nuance here is really all men. It's, it's the entire populace. 
It's not just these men or those leaders or this tribe or this nation or just the Jews or just, you know, it's, it's all the measure of, of God's people. The populace as a whole has been given gifts for ministry. And so how do you fulfill this calling? Well, two ways. Number one, you are actually empowered by God with gifts to live out the Christian life and witness for the gospel. He gifts you specifically you, to be able to do it. You might not know that. Maybe you don't know because you haven't tried. (laughs) For whatever reason it may be, you may not understand how that calling is supernaturally given to you, but it is. It is a supernatural gift that you have received. And so you are not just called to be the church, not just the leaders up front, but you. But you're also gifted by the Holy Spirit. Christ gives you gifts. The Lord gives you gifts and abilities to be the church. The other thing is that he provides people to equip you. See, this is the key verse. I think in all of this, if we get nothing else, take a close look at verses 11 and 12. It says, he himself, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, right? So he's admitting, well, yeah, there are some that I have actually given this equipment to be a professional minister to some degree, to do this as a vocation, not as a tent maker. But, verse 12, he gives those people not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. And here's what's crucial. We in the church, especially in America, we have made a grave mistake in assuming that it's the pastor's role to to do church. And so we we come and we sit in our seats and we listen to the sermon and we we listen to the worship and we generally evaluate it. Whenever I go to lunch with people after church, usually one of the things is, you know, did you, you know, did the sermon speak to you? What did you get out of worship today? Oh, I didn't really like the, that song. I didn't really get anything out of that sermon. I was kind of half paying attention. The pastor, you know, was just weird and put me to sleep. He was talking about the saints and calling and, right? And part of the reason we feel that way is because when we come, we somehow expect that there is a, a leading and a participating, right? Rather than a leading and leading. But the pastor's role is not to do all of the church's ministry. It's not to do all of the church's care, It's not to be the one person who makes sure he prays for all the people. His job, his calling, is to equip the saints, and the saints are you, to do those things as the church. And if you hire a pastor, a transitional pastor, a worship leader, with the expectations that they are going to be the ones to make everything happen, you're going to be really disappointed and fall flat. Because it's not their role. See, the Lord gives certain people with a giftedness to lead, and their role is to make sure that the people are equipped. That in the preaching of the word, and whatever programs and Bible studies and things we do, that that people can come and they can breathe in to some degree, and then they can go and they can breathe out. That's the role of the, the professional ministers, so to speak. And even more than that, it's not just their role, it's also yours. See, if you think that the pastor is primarily supposed to be your source of scripture and truth each week, again, 
you might have some inventory of spiritual health to do. Because we ought to be a people that engage in God's word on our own. We should. We should take the things that a pastor speaks of. You should look at this passage when you go home throughout this week, and you should test it against anything that I say. I should not be. If I am the one time this week that you hear scripture, you're doing it wrong. I got to tell you. We are to take a responsibility for our own spiritual health and well-being. What would it look like if instead of just coming to church, right, you, you get all your clothes on, you barely get ready, maybe you got to get your kids out the door, and you show up and you plop yourself in the seat and you go, please let it be songs that I like. But instead, you spend time preparing before worship to meet Christ. Do you ever think that the, that the role of the, of the worshiper in the sanctuary is actually to worship? You're not here for yourself on Sunday mornings. You're here for him. Amen. You're here to come in a disciplined way, to come and be ready to prepare your hearts. Your responsibility when you walk into the doors, right now they're virtual doors, of the sanctuary, is to prepare your heart and mind and expect that God will show up and that you can give him your best worship and honor and glory and praise. And when you do that, when you come in with that mentality, things start to happen. It starts to become far less about whether your favorite song is sung or your favorite style of worship, or maybe I hate those contemporary. No, it's, it's every single thing is about giving praise to him. And so if I don't like that musical rhythm, who cares? I am here to praise him in whatever way is glorifying to him. Do you ever think worship maybe in style and substance has very little to do with your preferences and desires and everything to do with his preferences and desires? Our worship ought to be shaped by what the Lord calls us to be like and how he wants to be praised. And throughout scripture, he tells us, he actually instructs us on worship and how it is to look. There are things we do in worship, not because we think they're cool, but because God tells us to. We ought to prepare ourselves. And as we pray through, and as your leaders are praying through who our next pastor is, my hope is that we might call somebody here whose heart is for equipping the saints, not for doing it all. No one can. We had a really great um, Bible study that just wrapped up. For some of you who were part of it. It was, it was a biblical hospitality study. And you know, it started with the idea of open your homes and invite people in. But one of the things that kind of came out of that is that the church growth really doesn't happen through the pastor as much as people think anymore. Like people don't come here because they kind of just walk off the street and then, oh, that pastor spoke really well. I'm going to stay here. That happens sometimes. But the vast way that the church will grow is people in their homes, and in their lives, and in their workplaces, being ministers of the gospel of Christ, and carrying that forward, and inviting people into their lives, and into their hearts, and into their routines, and into their dinner tables, and around meals, and to say, be with me, and, and here is why I live the way I live, because I have a hope that you can't even begin to fathom, let me tell you about it, and then those people come to know him, and then they come to church to worship alongside of us, that is how the church will grow. And if we look for somebody on the stage to be the primary instrument of church growth, we're going to be let down. It's not how it works. It just simply isn't as much as we want it to be. So why do we do this? What are the stakes? If we don't take ownership of our own faith and our own ministry that God has called us to individually, 
Paul says there's a couple things that will happen. Here's, here's what it is in verse 14. And we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Three things here. First off, if we don't take ownership of our faith, we'll be like children. The implication is that there will be a certain level of immaturity to us. We will not have the maturity and wisdom to walk through life in the way that honors the manner of God's calling, as Paul would instruct us to. The second is that we'll be tossed by waves. Maybe you know somebody who has given up their faith. For me, most of the times where I hear of people who have abandoned the faith, it's usually in the middle of a crisis. Right? They're walking with God, they're, they're doing well, and then a loved one passes, or an illness comes on, or a job is lost, there's family struggles. Right? And they go, well, a loving God would never... And then they, right? Part of that is because they are ones who have allowed themselves to be tossed in the waves. Make no mistake, my friends, the waves will come. Every single day. And the way that we are able to stand firm is by being in the word and being responsible in some ways for our own spiritual growth, to take ownership, to learn, to practice, to engage in, in spiritual things with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be so bathed in scripture that whenever hardship comes, we know exactly how to respond, to trust God in the little things so that when the big things go wrong, we've built up a sense of trust that says, Lord, I know you're with me, even though this is hard. Right? And the last is that we will be carried by every wind. There's a lot of bad teaching out there. I read it every single week. I read it in memes about Jesus stuff on Facebook. <laughs> I read it and in, in, hear it in sermons that I hear preached from, from mega pastors, who some of which are great, but a lot of which are not. I hear a false gospel taught, and it sounds really appealing. And if we don't take ownership of our faith, you are going to be subject to whoever stands up here and proclaims the word. And that's dangerous, because no matter how good they might be, and there's, there's good preachers and bad preachers, every one of them is a fallible, sinful human being who on occasion is going to get it wrong. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, in some way, since I have started to preach at this church, the few times you've seen me up here, I guarantee you I have in some way said something that wasn't biblically accurate because it's just the simple reality of being a fallible human. And so if you do not take responsibility, if you don't study the text on your own and with friends, with other Christians together, then you will be one who is going to be unable to discern right from wrong teaching. And every wind, everything that sounds great is going to carry you. That fun meme that talks about Jesus on Facebook that sounds so clever, you'll share it and you'll never even think about whether that's actually scripturally accurate or not. And so you'll throw it out there because you just don't know any better. We must take ownership. There's a pastor um, of the Village Church in Texas in Flower Mound. His name is Matt Chandler. And he says it this way. He says, nobody stumbles into godliness. There's no such thing as someone who just accidentally becomes more godly and more holy and more Christ-like that wakes up a year later and goes, yeah, I didn't even really try, but all of a sudden I was a more spiritual person. That doesn't happen. It's never by accident. It's only by intention that we can have that. And finally, Paul gives us the result. If we do these things, if we commit, especially in this time where we do not have a pastor, if we commit to being the church, if we commit to taking ownership of our faith, 
if we commit to protecting the church unity, if we commit to stop the gossip, if we commit to patience, if we commit to all these things as a people, here's what happens. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow, and we will grow, in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. For that to happen, each of the individual parts, you all have to work together. And for that to happen, you have to take a personal ownership of your faith. Imagine, imagine the church where the pastor steps down. And I can tell you this as someone who wants to be, you know, who's, who's looking at a career or vocation in this calling. One of the deepest joys I would have as a pastor of six, seven, eight years walking away from a church is to see that as I leave the stage, I am remarkably less important than I thought I was. Because the church is doing what the church is called to do on its own. Because it's been equipped to do so. That's the hope. Lord, I I pray that I would retire at, at, at an old age and look back at the churches where I will have ended up serving and say, man, I left and they just carried the gospel on. It's like I wasn't even necessary. <laughs> that would be the dream. And I can tell you, almost every pastor worth their salt is going to feel the same way. But to do that, we have to become part of the body of Christ collectively. It can't just be the leaders doing and the people participating. See, there's a, there's a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And if you ever want to actually have a vocation in ministry, uh, if I was a professor, I would require you to read this and give me like a 50-page summary of it. It is one of the greatest books ever. It's by John Piper, and, and he says this. He's talking about how the, the, the pastorate has become way too professionalized. And he says this, is there professional praying Professional trusting in God's promises? Professional weeping over souls? Professional musing on the depths of revelation? Professional rejoicing in the truth? Professional praising God's name? Professional treasuring the riches of Christ? Professional walking by the Spirit? Professional exercise of spiritual gifts? Professional dealing with demons? Professional pleading with backsliders? Professional perseverance in a hard marriage. Professional playing with children. Professional courage in the face of persecution. Professional patience with everyone. See, why do we choke on the word professional in those connections? It is because professionalism carries the connotation of an education. A set of skills and a set of guild-defined standards which are possible without a faith in Jesus. See, professionalism is not supernatural, but the heart of ministry is what he's telling us is that you have professional ministers and there is a need for them to some degree it's not it's not that we should not call a pastor don't get that from me at all we we need somebody who will lead the vision of this church forward and to be a, a primary equipper in some way of the saints but there's a danger when we start to rely on all the things we just read in a professional ministry sense, when it's just the people up front that are doing all those things and we're watching and clapping along. That's not the way it's meant to go. What if we use this season, not just of transition, but of Advent, to prepare our hearts to worship? That we as a church resolved individually and united as a body to to praise the one 
who created us and loves us, to take ownership of our faith, to walk in a manner that is worthy, so that when, when that next pastor comes, they might be shocked by the level of unity that this church has exhibited, that there would be an abundance of grace and patience. What would it look like if next week, before you showed up to this live stream for Advent, before we came, you spent 15 minutes as a family just in prayer together, inviting the Lord to show up, and you came expectant to worship God. And when we stand up here and sing, that you and your homes would stand and you would sing. Maybe so loud that your neighbors hear. Oh, I only hope so. If you're in an apartment, get me a noise complaint. If you bring me a a written noise complaint from worship next Sunday, I will take you to lunch. That's my promise to you. (laughs) That That is my challenge for you. This Advent season, spend the time preparing your own heart. Focus less about the uncertainty of things. Trust that those who are looking to to lead the the charge for calling our next person are diligently doing their work and worry about doing your own. Prepare your own heart and mind. Protect the unity of this church. Lift it up wherever you go and see what the Lord does. Our role up here is to equip the saints. The saints' role is to be those who minister in this world over the things of God, who carry the gospel. Will you be one of those saints? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you for years that we have had a faithful leadership. For a pastor whose heart has been after your people, who has sought to equip us and walk with us in every way. And God, as we enter this time of transition, Lord, we pray individually that we would fulfill the roles that you've called us to. We pray that you would shape our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would be in each and every one of our homes. We pray that you would give us your spirit, that you would lead us by your truth. We pray. And Lord, we lift up this church. Father, we pray for its leaders. We pray that they would have the discernment that is needed to call whoever it is that we might have as our next pastor here. We pray for the person who will be leading transition. We pray that we would be willing as a church to be honest with ourselves, to engage in some introspection, to see what it is and what areas we might need to grow, both as a church and as individuals. Father, we pray that our own selfish thoughts and desires would slide into the background and that your saints would be equipped by your gospel to prioritize the things of you. Be with us this week as we go out. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,